The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. You can follow along on the screen behind me in your own personal Bible, or if you're reading with the Bible underneath your chair, it's on page 640. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, As you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witness, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the reading of God's word. All right, let's pray and let's get rolling. Father, I pray that you would uh, guide us this morning. Uh, God, I thank you that you are here. God, you're everywhere. Uh, You watch over us. You are with us uh, no matter what, always, all the time. And sometimes that's an encouragement to us, and sometimes that's conviction to us. But God, always, at all times, you're with us. But God, I thank you at times like this where uh, people come to gather and worship you and lift up your name, that you're there in a very special way. You said we're two or more gathered together in my name there. I am in your midst. And God, I know that that is something that is real. And so Father, I pray that we would be cognizant of that this morning, that we would know that you are in our midst. God, we are here across the spectrum. God, some of us here are, uh, we love you and we are on fire for you and we are seeking after you and following after you and trying to obey you. And God, some of us are far from you. God, some of us are encouraged this morning. Some of us are beaten down and broken down. Some of us are hurting physically, hurting emotionally, hurting even mentally. Father, I pray that you would be here for each person, that you would meet us, that as I talk, and as we sing, as we celebrate communion, as we bring in new members, that we would be cognizant that you are here in our midst. That's what sets us apart as a people. Is your presence in our midst. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So this is our second week in a uh, new series that we're doing on the book of First Thessalonians. Uh, our like, kind of working title is called Built to Last. 
And the idea of that is that this is one of the, the fun books in the New Testament, and that uh, it's one of the very few letters, and that's what the epistles are, by the way. The, most of the books of the, of the New Testament are epistles, or they're letters from a, an apostle to a church or a number of churches. And this is one of the few epistles that is a good news epistle, where Paul really isn't, doesn't have to, like, get on them for the crazy stuff that they're doing. We did uh, 1 Corinthians uh, the year before last, and Jonathan called it the Behind the Woodshed uh, series because Paul kind of starts off that book and says, hey, I love you guys, and then he immediately goes into, but you guys are crazy. And he spends the rest of the book, like, let them know all the stupid stuff that they're doing and why they're doing it and how they need to change. 1 Thessalonians is a different kind of book in that uh, it's a good news book. He's encouraged by what's going on. So the way that it would work is that Paul would be a part of a church planning team that would be sent out by a mother church. So they say, hey, go out on a journey, spread the gospel, preach the gospel, and start churches. And so what Paul would do this is, the, is he would go out with a team, and they'd go into a new city, and they would uh, first meet with the uh, synagogue. That's the place where the Jews would worship in the middle of the city. And he'd come in, and he'd say, hey, uh, you guys, you're the Jews. I'm one of you guys, and we have been waiting for a Messiah to come to save us. And I got great news for you. The Messiah has come. He's Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And then, depending on what would happen there, uh, some, some Jews would come to faith. And then, uh, but invariably, what would happen is he would have to leave the synagogue because the Jews that didn't believe said, You need to get out of here. And he'd leave there and he'd preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the non Jews in the city. And so the, Paul and his team are on the second missionary journey, their second church planting journey. And they're trying to go one way, and God just won't let them go that way. And I don't know if you followed Jesus for very long, but uh, if you have for very long, then you've come to a sort of place where you want to go one way with your life, and he just kind of blocks you. Like you just feel like either inside, like, hey, this isn't right, or he uses circumstances, and he closes the door in a very clear way. And sometimes that can be incredibly frustrating because we're like, I just want to do this thing. This is a good thing, but he closes the door. And that's what he does for Paul and his team. He says, you can't go this way. I want to. And so in the middle of this, of, uh, this sort of trying to figure out what way they're going to go, Paul is sleeping one night. In the middle of this sleep, he has a dream. And in this dream, a man from Macedonia appears to him and says, come to Macedonia and preach to us. And so Paul and his team say, I guess that's what we're supposed to do. And so they go to Macedonia. Now, now, understand, they wanted to go one way. God closed the door. Paul tells us that God closed the door. God gives them a dream where a man from Macedonia says, come and preach the gospel to us. So Paul says, all right, let's do that. They get to Macedonia. And as soon as they get to Macedonia, things go terrible the whole time. They get into the first city, which is the city of Philippi, and they get locked up for preaching the gospel immediately. And not only do they get locked up, but they get beaten for preaching the gospel. Now, I don't know how you're put on the hook, but, uh, you know, I would imagine if Dale and I and a couple of the guys were out, like, going to a new city, and we go to preach the gospel there, and we're locked up in the jail after we've been beaten, I would think, I would have a couple of thoughts. One is, maybe we shouldn't have come here, number one. Number two, I would go into the blame game saying, God, we're just trying to do what you want us to do. Why is this happening to us? But Paul and Silas in the prison at Philippi instead, 
in the middle of the night, they start singing a hymn. Because they're put on the hook a little bit different than I think most American Christians are. They, their thought process, sitting in that jail in the middle of the night, sore all over, open sores, beaten in a in a prison, in a dungeon, is not like our kind of prison, right? It's not like the guys that you see in the mug shots on the online on Monday. This is a prison that's like dark and damp. There's disease down there. There are rats down there. There are all kinds of insects and animals, and it is not a pleasant place to be. And they say, we are grateful that you would consider us worthy to suffer for your sake. And so they start singing. And as they sing, a miracle happens and God opens the doors of the prison. And instead of rushing out, Paul and Silas stay in the prison. And the jailer sees what happens and he thinks, something has happened, all the doors are open, they've escaped. I'm gonna be killed because I've fallen down on my job. The one thing a jailer has to do is keep them in jail, right? And Paul yells, and he's getting ready to take his own life because of that. And Paul yells out from no, we're all still here. And so therefore, the Philippian jailer becomes a believer and the gospel spreads. But not only does that happen, but again, they have to leave town because the gospel being spread there causes such a great uproar. They're doing what God called them to do and yet they keep suffering for it. They're forced to go to the next city, which is Thessalonica, And they get to Thessalonica, and just as they did everywhere else, they go to the synagogue and they preach the gospel. They say, hey, Jews, this Jesus is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And the Jews respond by by chasing them out of the synagogue. Paul and his team continue to preach the gospel, and Gentiles come to faith. But the Jews are angry, and they hire a bunch of hoodlums to cause a riot And they have to take Paul and Silas and the the church planning team and sneak them out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night. Paul and the team are doing exactly what God called them to do, and yet every step along the way, they suffer for it. And yet they don't think, hey, maybe we should just retire. Maybe we should just go back home. They think, hey, let's continue to go down this journey. Now, Paul was worried about the church of Thessalonica. Because the church of Thessalonica, he didn't get to stay there. Usually he would stay with a a band of new believers. Because I don't know, some of you are new believers right now, and some of you remember what it was like to be a new believer. Man, it's exciting. I love it. I love to be around new believers. It is totally exciting. It is, because it's like a brand new relationship. Everything is, you're in that honeymoon stage. It's beautiful. But can you imagine what a church would be like of only new believers all together? They'd be ready to take the wall, but they would just kind of be, you know, they wouldn't really know what's going on yet. And so Paul has, is worried about this church of nothing but new believers because they couldn't, he couldn't stay like he normally would for a few months or a couple of years to help them find a good foundation. And Paul's worried about them. And Paul keeps trying to make it back to Thessalonica to check in with them, and the way keeps getting barred every time he tries to come back. And so finally he gets to a point, he says, all right, I'm worried about the church of Thessalonica. Timothy, would you go back to Thessalonica and check and see how things are going on? So he sends Timothy, 
And Timothy goes to Thessalonica, gets the lay of the land, and he comes back to Paul. And he comes back to Paul, and Paul's worried. Like, sort of like a, a parent who leaves their kids home for the first time. Like, so there's certain layers, like... Uh, uh, our kids are eight and five, so like we've passed the, the like the first time that you leave them at home with a sitter, and then the first time that you leave them overnight. Each time you're kind of nervous, and now we're like, hey, let's get out of town. But then there's sort of like the next layer that I haven't come to yet, where you're going to leave the kids at home by themselves. Now I can't imagine leaving Sophia. I'm feel okay. If you guys have met Landon, I'm really worried about this first time that we're going to do this. They were going to leave Landon at home even for an hour, much less leave them overnight. And Paul's worried about the church of Thessalonica. And Timothy comes back and he gives a report and says, Paul, you won't believe it. It is awesome. The church is thriving. It is, not only is it thriving, not only are they doing well, but they are growing. And not only are they growing, more and more people are coming to know Christ. And it's not just in the city of Thessalonica, but it's the whole region of Macedonia and beyond. People have heard about the genuineness of their faith. And it's to praise of God. Not only the gospel revolutionized the lives of the people in Thessalonica, which we talked about last week, the gospel is a message, the gospel is a power, and the gospel revolutionizes lives, but it had also spread throughout the whole entire region. So what's the lesson here for us, is the question. Because I don't know about how you read stories like this, like the book of Thessalonians or uh, the story of Paul visiting Philippi and Thessalonica and getting locked up and beaten and moved on. I read it like, hey, that's a really cool story. Paul and his team are a bunch of heroes. But I'm sort of in a different category than they are. They like did this awesome thing. They started these churches, but they're Paul. He, he wrote most of the New Testament. I'm sort of a different level than he is. But here I think is the lesson for us to think about is that Paul was most encouraged not that he came to the church, to the city of Thessalonica and preached the gospel and a church was founded there, but he was most encouraged that when he left there, the gospel continued to be shared even though not only had Paul suffered as they visited each city and preached the gospel, but the Thessalonians had suffered themselves as well. After Paul leaves, all of the, the believers are there and Paul's gone, but they still find themselves like caught between a rock and a hard place. The Jews didn't like them. The people who should be the, the religious, the people who should be welcoming the news of Jesus and who he, who he did and what, who he was and what he did for them, they didn't like them because they didn't want to believe. And the Gentiles, who most of them had come from, they didn't like them either because of this new faith in Jesus set them apart from them. I don't know if you've experienced this as a believer, but sometimes as a believer, we find ourselves sort of like a, with no natural camp to be a part of. A Christian is not either a Republican or a Democrat. A Christian is neither a Northerner or a Southerner. A Christian is neither, uh, doesn't fit neatly into any sort of pocket. In fact, a Christian doesn't even fit into the religious or irreligious pocket. Because the religious sort of mindset says, hey, like it's sort of this mindset of like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live a life that is right before God. 
and you sort of try to look down the people around you who aren't living that kind of life. The irreligious says, I'm, I'm gonna go whatever way I wanna go regardless of what God says. I'm not gonna listen to what he says. I'm gonna go my own way. But a Christian is a, sort of a, a mixture of those two, if you will, or is there a whole different category of person really who says, I understand that I cannot live a life that's worthy of God before him. I am a sinner that has no hope. And so therefore, I don't look down on the people around me, but a sinner also says that, but yet I've discovered that God is the God of creation. He's my God. He is the Lord of my life. He took the bullet for me. Jesus Christ died the penalty for the penalty that I deserved on the cross and has exchanged, exchanged his life for my life. It's a whole new category of person. So how does the... T- What's our lesson that we should have? The lesson that we should have is that we see as the gospel spread person to person, town to town, that Christianity was an an unstoppable spreading force, that this should be the type of church that we are a part of today. This is a beautiful passage of what the church, of what our lives could and should be like. We're going to look at three characteristics really quick. Three characteristics of a church that's able to grow and spread in the midst of a hostile culture. First of all, a church is ignite, a missional church is ignited by love. A missional church chooses to sacrifice, and a missional church is full of people who deeply share their lives. First of all, a missional church is ignited by love. Paul's recounting, he's giving thanks through chapter one and chapter two of what had happened at the church as the church at Thessalonica was founded that caused it to be a church that would continue to last and grow and that that would even spread the gospel in the city and around the area around it. And listen to the wording that Paul uses as he describes how he and the team that planted the church came to Thessalonica and how he feels about the church still. He says in verse one, for you yourselves know brothers that are coming to you is not in vain. He says down in verse nine, for you remember brothers our labor and toil, how we work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. In verse 14, he says, for you, brothers, became imitators. He calls them brothers. Look at verse, in verse 17, he says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. Listen to verse seven. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In verse 11, he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. Back in chapter one, in verse four, he said, "Brother, for we know brothers loved by God. He says they are loved by God. And then in verse eight of chapter two, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you had become very dear to us. 
Paul and his church planting team went to Thessalonica fresh with bruises and sores on their back from Philippi to share the gospel again. And then when they were kicked out of the synagogue, they kept on sharing the gospel. And when they were kicked out of Thessalonica, they kept on sharing the gospel because they were motivated. Their lives were ignited by a greater love. A love that came from the depths of their souls. It wasn't a superficial like, hey, how are you this morning? I love you, kind of welcome to church kind of love, but a love that was deep, that motivated everything they did from their, the center of their heart. It was a love that ignited, a tender love that was ignited from their core of who they were that poured out to the people around them. And the only reason, only way that you and I can be motivated by that kind of tender love for each other, the people that are in this room, and for people who, that, that, look, he left Philippi, a people who had locked him up and beaten him and then went to a whole new city that he didn't know anybody there. And it says that he loved them tenderly. He stood up before them, motivated and ignited by a heart of love for them because there was a greater love that was motivating everything that he did. Someone loved him with a never ending, never stopping, never giving up kind of love that caused him and the church planning team to be able to stand before people and look them in their eyes and love them even though they didn't, weren't like them, they didn't, Oftentimes they didn't speak the same language. They didn't come from the same background. They didn't share the same culture. He could look at them in their eyes and love them, not because there was something that they had in common, but because there was something, someone that had given himself for them and had given his life for them. Why had the Thessalonians become so dear to Paul and the church planning team? It wasn't because something that they had done that was so great. It's because they were motivated by a deeper love of God, of Jesus for them on their behalf. The wording here is a tender wording. It's intimate. It's a familial. It's a family love. First Thessalonians overflows with family language. Did you notice the, the thing that tied those verses together that we went over? Verses 1, 9, 14, and 17, Paul calls them brothers. It, it wasn't just a, a form of speech that they use with each other. Like maybe you grew up in a kind of church where they say, hey, Brother Bill, hey, Sister Jane, good morning. It was a very real love for each other. Because if you become a believer, and the, if you were a Jew and the Jews would have nothing to do with you, or if you were a Gentile and the Jew, Gentiles would have nothing to do with you, you have no natural tie to anybody now in your hometown. Maybe you're, even your own family doesn't understand or may even reject you. Maybe some of you here, you've experienced that. When you became a believer, your own family looks at you differently now. Maybe your own family even rejects you. Your friends reject you. There are the people who used to hang out with that looks at you differently, but now you are a part of a family. That's because you share a common father now. And if you and I share a common father, 
And if you and I share a common older brother, Jesus Christ, who died for us, then what does that make you and me if we're believers? It makes us brothers and sisters at a very real and a very deep level. Look at verse seven, like a nursing mother. Hear how tender and intimate his care and his love for them was. Like a father with his children. That's because the new relationship we have with the father changes our identity. So much, you may not even realize it. Some of you are younger, you may not even realize how much of your identity, because you think like, hey, I'm nothing like my dad, I'm nothing like my mom, I'm nothing like my family, I'm nothing like where I came from. You may, you may not even, you may be young enough that you don't even realize it yet, but the family that you come from, good or bad, the area that you grew up in, how much money you had or did not have, all the things that, made, all the things that surrounded your background, it determines your identity. But if you're a believer in Christ, you have a brand new identity that's been determined by a father who adopted you when you were fatherless and motherless and without anyone to care for you and on your own. And that changes our identity. And then that new relationship that we have with each other changes our sense of responsibility. If if I, if, let's go back to those mug, mug shots that you sometimes see online on Monday mornings and see everybody over the weekend, they got in trouble and they're all those great shots we love to see of, you know, people looking rough and had a bad weekend. If you're, if you're looking through those and you just see like face after face, somebody who got in trouble, drinking too much, beat their wife, DUI, whatever happened, like, oh, that's terrible, that's terrible. What a terrible person, what a terrible person. But if you cross somebody who looks familiar, all of a sudden you think, all right, what responsibility do I have now? But if you cross a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or a child, all of a sudden your responsibility changes, doesn't it? And as you look across this room back and forth, any person in this room that calls themselves a child of God, and if you call yourself a child of God, we have a different kind of responsibility to each other. But not only that, but as you go out during the week and you're working your jobs and you're surrounded by your family, your neighbors and CO students as you're working your awesome jobs at McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and Walmart or wherever else you're working, I know how much you're loving that. And each person that you look in the eye of, there's gonna be people who are believers, but there'll also be people who aren't believers yet that God has called. And we don't know who they are. And we bear responsibility to anybody that he has called to be his child, even if they don't believe yet. And that's why Paul would leave Philippi with fresh wounds on his back and head to Thessalonica and proclaim to a people he never met from a heart that's ignited by a love for them. And even though he was only there a couple of weeks, would say they had become dear to him. A missional church, a church that spreads in the middle of hostile territory in the midst of a society, both religious and irreligious, that no, wants nothing to do with them, is ignited by love, but a, a missional church also chooses 
to sacrifice. Verse nine. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, how we worked day and night that we might, might not be a burden to you. So here's what he's describing. Uh, obviously, he labored and told because he comes to Thessalonica sore from being in prison. He labored and told with them because he said, as I'm gonna be in your midst, he had the right as an apostle, once people started to believe, to say, hey, it's time to pass the collection plate around now and because I need to like, you know, I need to like eat and I need to pay whoever's putting us up and, you know, I need to have clothes and, you know, I need to keep, you know, gas to the camel or whatever all has to go on to, to keep him going in life. Yeah, I have to pay the bills. I have to keep the lights on. I don't know whatever they had, all the bills they had to pay, but he could have passed the collection plate around. That's what he's saying. I had the right to do that once there was a church. But he said, we chose not to do that among you because we wanted to show you that we weren't here because we were here for dishonest gain. We weren't here to be greedy. We weren't here to puff ourselves up. We weren't here to establish the great ministry of Paul and I could get on, have a podcast and get on TV and get on satellite and have people send me money. He said, I, we wanted to take that out of the mix and so we wanted to stand up and proclaim to you the gospel without expecting anything from you in return. And so in order to do that, I have a job and so I would have to work that job day and night in order to be able to proclaim the gospel to you and to support myself and to support ourselves as a team. We labored day and night. Paul had every right to demand and nothing would have been wrong if he had passed the collection plate around and had him take up a collection so that he could be able to pay his expenses. He says, no, we're gonna work to take that out of the mix for you guys. So it won't be something that'll trip you up this early on. Paul and the team sacrificed and that they didn't wanna be a burden even though they had a legitimate claim. And you know why they would do that? Why would they work night and day, making tents, preaching the gospel? Making tents would be a tedious, boring job. Anybody have a, don't raise your hand, anybody have a tedious and boring job? I work here with a number of people together, and I'm gonna be honest and say, oftentimes, I have a tedious and a boring job. And Paul's working this tedious and boring job and then he's preaching the gospel and even as he preaches the gospel, people are hating him and not liking him. He says, we've labored night and day. We worked day and night. The wording here, a labor and toll, it just means hard labor that he would sweat over that we might not be a burden to you. And you know why he would do that? Why would the team do that? Because there was something more dear to them than this world. And that is the mysterious power of Christianity. That to the believer, that there is something more dear to them than this world. That is what empowered Christianity to spread across the ancient world. That is what is empowering the Christianity to spread across the globe today. That's what has empowered the church through the years and through the ages is that you and I, believers, consider not that uh, 
reputation or money or uh, comfort or luxury or houses or cars or whatever, fill in the blank, that career or significance or fame, that there's something more dear to us than any of those things. It's our connection to Christ. And that enables us to be free to choose greater sacrifice. See, this is the power of Christianity. Christianity is unique from other religions. And the other religions understandably say, hey, if you're gonna be right before God, if you're gonna, then you need to give this amount. If you're gonna be right before God, then you need to volunteer this much. If you're gonna, volunt- if you're gonna be right before God, then you need to do these number of things. And let me tell you, it would be nice to have a checklist that said, hey, I can just do this every day. I can do this every week and know everything's okay this week. I am done with all my responsibilities. But for the Christian, that's what we are understanding is that my life belongs to God. And this world is not the end all be all. There's something greater, a treasure that is for me in heaven. Whenever this world, the way that we see it ends and sin and pain is taken away and we are reunited with God in the way things should be in a new heaven and a new earth. And that enables the Christian to say, look, there's a, there's a biblical, uh, that transcends the Bible, a biblical concept of the tithe, but nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to give a tenth of all that we have each week or each paycheck. You know why? Because a tenth of your paycheck doesn't belong to God. If you're a believer, all of it does. A tenth of your life doesn't belong to God. All of it does. And you and I are motivated by a greater treasure than what we're surrounded by and what we have in our pockets that enables us to choose to sacrifice. For a believer, sacrifice is totally free choice. It's not a due that you pay. You're not beholden to anyone. You are totally free. But over and over again, Christians have astounded the world around them and the people around them by choosing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, to choose to sacrifice for the sake of not only for each other, but for total strangers. Christianity, the early church was founded about much of the great Much of the great uh, name that Christianity got among non-believers was built upon Christians who even in the middle of of a plague that was breaking out in a city would choose to care for the sick and the dying, knowing that it was a higher chance that they would contract the plague themselves and die. Not because they were masochists, but because they had a greater treasure. Nobody made them do it. Nobody promised them a thousand virgins on the other side. They freely chose to do it out of a love and out of a sense that it was a greater treasure waiting for them. That's something that can't be faked. People intuitively know the difference. And that's why Paul in verses three through six tells them how, he says, you yourselves know how we came. Uh, We didn't come greedy. We didn't come with impure motives. We didn't come from uh, seeking glory for ourselves, uh, nor from, we're not seeing glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being effectually desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very 
dear. A missional church is ignited by love. It chooses to sacrifice. But then it leads us to the last thing that Paul just stated here, the deepest level that Paul talks about. A missional church is full of people who deeply share their lives. Paul says in verse eight, being affectionately desirous of you. Uh, This wording appears only here in the New Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It's actually uh, very rare in ancient literature. The wording there, being affectionately desirous of you, is a picture of how a parent grieves for a a departed child. That's the places that you would find it in ancient literature. There's one inscription where it talks about how the parents were deeply affectionate and desirous missing their deceased son. It's how a parent grieves for a departed child. It's an earnest longing for them. It says then that we were ready, being deeply, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you. The wording there has a, a wording of, depending on what translation you might read, it might say that we were uh, eager or we were excited to, to, to make this, to, to share our lives with you. But really the wording there has to do with um, an act of, of the will of a commitment to the Thessalonians to give them both the message and themselves. It says we were willing to willing and ready to share not only the gospel, they shared the gospel with them, but also our own souls. Our own souls. Now this, this is a favorite verse of a lot of people who would like to talk about sharing their faith and how we are to share our faith, and it absolutely is talking about that. But what it's talking about is it's not talking about, hey, I'm gonna share my life with you, let's go grab a coffee, and so I'm sharing my life with you. Let's go grab a meal together. That's what he's talking about, that we build relationships with people who don't know Christ before we share the gospel with them. That's not exactly the picture that it's giving here. The picture is much deeper than that. It's a picture of saying, I am pouring out my life for the sake of the people around me. I am giving my life, my own self. The wording there has to do with my soul, my my own self, my soul to the people around me. It's ignited by love. It is, it is a choice to sacrifice, but it's a giving of your whole self as we share the gospel. It's saying, I'm not counting my own time and my own energy as my own. I'm giving, pouring out my life for the sake of a people who may not always be excited to hear it, who oftentimes will chase me out of town, who will beat me, but yet some will hear and they will believe and that is worth giving my life for. How does a church spread whenever you're surrounded by people who don't wanna hear what you're saying? How do you share your gospel at your campus or your workplace or with a family who don't wanna hear what you're saying? Do you know how it spreads? spreads not just by slipping a track into toilet paper or and just inviting somebody to church. 
It's shared as you with a heart that's ignited by love. Choose to sacrifice because you, you choose to sacrifice, not forced by anybody else because you know there's a treasure, a greater treasure that awaits you. And the way that you sacrifice is you pour out your life, your time, your energy, your efforts, your love for a people that will often reject it, but some won't. It adds a legitimacy to the gospel when we proclaim it, when they see that kind of life lived out in those of us that proclaim it. But how do we do that? Because I don't know about you, but that does not sound like an awesome kind of life. To uh, Part of my, 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 my heart says yes. And part of my head, honestly, if I'm going to be honest with you guys, says I don't want any kind of life like that. Where do we find the courage, the ability, the motivation to give our own souls to others? Especially when they're often going to reject it. It's going to be unappreciated and abused. Don't you find that it's a pretty rare thing for somebody to give their whole self to somebody else? Our marriages, our relationships, you guys, you guys know. I don't want to give you my whole self because I'm afraid if you reject me, then I'm going to be really hurt. And so I hold part of myself back. And we do that in romantic relationships and marriages and friendships. I think that's most relationships in America are where we hold back a lot or we hold back a little bit, but I'm not going to give you everything. How do we find the motivation to do that? Well, there was one who came who did exactly that. There was one who came who knew that he would be spitten upon and rejected. He knew that he would be beaten. He knew that he would be pierced. He knew that he would be cruelly murdered. He knew that he would be rejected by the people that he was giving his life for. He knew that even his closest friends would turn and run away and that one of his closest confidants would even deny him in his hour of need. He knew. And yet he gave. As he was hanging on that cross in immense agony and pain, he even in that moment said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. How do you and I find the motivation to give our lives to the people around us even when they will often reject us? It's because because there was one who did it for us. And because he did it for us, because he did it for me, I have everything. And because I have everything, I can give the people around me everything. I pray God would make us a church. He would make us a people. He would make you CO students that he would make us a people who are willing to sacrifice, freely choosing sacrifice that's ignited by love, and would give our lives, deeply share our lives with the people around us. Our time, our energy, our successes, our failures. So they would, it would add a sweetness to the gospel as we proclaim it.
A missional church is ignited by a deep love that leads willingly to costly sacrifice. A deep love that leads willingly to costly sacrifice. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.